sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Am I the only one who thinks this is totally insane? Rob, we're fighting theological injustice here. They're not using just weights and measures. He said we have 50 listeners. I think he's being generous. Read your Bible is interpreted by experts. Rob, are you as shocked as I am? It's nonsense. If you've given any money to this, you need to complain. You ask for your money back. I don't know about you, but I find this annoying. What up and shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb show, the show where theology matters, scholarship counts, and theology matters. My name is Caleb Hegg. Rob is on vacation today, and so I am welcoming my father, Tim Hegg. Welcome to the show, Dad. Hey, nice to be here. And uh, we do this every once in a while, and any time that uh, Rob feels like he needs a day off. Uh, now, Rob just text messaged me. He's sitting on a dock in Coeur d'Alene reading Jeremiah in Hebrew. Uh, so, yay for, for Rob and his vacation time. Um, but every once in a while, when we, uh, when we let Rob go for a day, then we will bring my father on to answer questions. And, uh, yeah. So, before we get started with, uh, we, we'll jump right into questions here in a few seconds. We've got some good ones. But before we do that, maybe you can give us just a little rundown about what's going on at Thor Resource now. Now, I know that you, you finished Hebrews, your Hebrews studies, the, the study through the book of Hebrews, and the fruit of that has been the uh, Hebrews commentary that just came out at TorahResource.com. But next year, you're going to have to start another book. Any ideas at all what book you're going to be studying come September? Yes, actually, um, uh, I've been praying about that and reading through the apostolic scriptures. We we tend to try to do apostolic scriptures uh, on our uh, um free uh, class at Torah Resource Institute, uh, which we hold on Wednesday evenings. And uh, that's because we're spending a lot of time uh, studying the, the Torah and the Tanakh at other times. And uh, so I've uh, been reading through the Apostolic Scriptures in, uh, with my uh, Greek Testament next to my bedstand, and um, uh talking with my wife Paulette about it, and because she's been part of that uh, all through the times when we've uh, been—she sits next to me on Wednesday evenings when we do the the teaching. And so uh, we had a a number of different uh, options. I was thinking about, you know, a smaller book so that we can maybe finish it uh, without having to go over a a, a year's time. But we've decided on 1 John. So the epistle of 1 John, and nice. we're going to start the 15th, uh, if I remember correctly, September 15th. The, the, uh, it's not the first Wednesday, but I think the second Wednesday um, in September. That's, not, and it, that's kind it, of the, it's, at, it's at 7 o'clock uh, Pacific Standard Time, or Daylight Time, whichever, uh, 7 o'clock on Wednesday evenings. And we, we broadcast it live, um, and uh, anybody and everybody can join if they'd like. First John's a fun one. It's it's the time when John kind of his inner hippie comes out, and because all he talks about is love, right? Love, love, love. Love is all right. you need. So, yeah. So it'll be uh, it'll be a good time once again, as we always should do, and that is to read the uh, 
read the apostolic scriptures from the background of the Tanakh and uh, the background of the Hebrew in the Tanakh, because obviously John and other writers uh, of the apostolic scriptures had that well in mind, and that was their worldview. So, uh, Gary's online, and he's he's in the chat room, and that's the first time that I heard that he that you're doing First John. So that, and I think it's the first time Gary heard it too. So this is this is all news to the Torah Resource staff as well. Right. <laughs> um, so anyway. Um, all right, good. And uh, then the, there's one other product that I constantly bug you about. And uh, any idea when you'll get working on the, uh, the daily Sidur? You know, believe it or not, I have been working on it just here and there throughout the summer. I, uh, I, I didn't judge my time wisely when it came to teaching our mini course, uh, which we did uh, a week ago. And uh, it, it took more time to prepare and more time to offer the course that Rob and I did. So I'm a little bit behind on that. I, I'm working on it. All I can say is that there are a lot of issues that we have to overcome or decide upon before we put out a full daily sedur. And I'm, uh, I guess one of the things that I'm concerned about is I don't want people to think that we're encouraging a, a return to a, a rabbinic approach to our faith. However, uh, there is, I think, and we've seen this uh, ourselves as we've used it and we've heard it from others, um, there is value in these prayers that have been put together over the centuries. And uh, I, I want to take that value and put it into a usable framework um, for th those who would um, want to use it. Now, I know that uh, last year at at family camp, we put out a, uh, I don't know, a rough copy of the Shacharit daily service. And I've gotten feedback from people on that, which I'm grateful for, because the numbers of them have said it was very helpful for them. And I just want to, uh, before we put together a complete daily sedur, we want to make sure we have afternoon prayers and evening prayers for those who want to engage in those. Uh, and that's what I'm working on now. So I'm, I'm hesitant to give a date for the simple reason that it, it is a lot of work, and it just depends how, how heavy my load is as we come into the, uh, the fall quarter at Tor Resource Institute, along with the other things that I'm, that I'm uh, you know, responsible for. And those other things include uh, uh, teaching it, uh, obviously teaching and administering Tor Resource Institute. And uh, so uh, if you would like to uh, take Hebrew, now is the time to sign up because my father's uh, beginning Hebrew class will begin in September. I believe it's on September 6th. 6th. There you yep. go, September 6th. So sign up today. You can do it on TorahResource.com. All right, before we jump into these questions, uh, I think everyone knows this already, but we'll just say it anyway. Uh, at our programming desk, of course, is uh, Gary Springer. He's the one who's in charge of making sure you all can hear us, and uh, we sure are thankful for that. And then also... All of our graphics and everything done by Michael Gonzalez. Also thankful for that. And our chat room is brought to you by Mark Randall. Thank you, Mark. All right, uh, let's jump into it. So I put out a, uh, a, a call for questions. Now, we already had some. As many people know on this show, there's one guy who loves to, uh, loves to uh, counter anything that Rob and I say. And uh, so... Uh, this one he he put up on his uh, Google Plus page. I'm not sure why he doesn't like uh, uh, engaging on the Facebook page. Who knows? Anyway, uh, so this from Miguel. He says, if you can please allow me this question. What is the difference between Nahar? I think he means Nohri, but he says Nahar, uh, a Toshav, a Ger, 
and a native born, is it possible for one to obtain status of another? This question goes the, to the question of conversion, which Rob says is not mentioned in the Tanakh. I say the concept is. So what I'm getting from Miguel here is that Nohri, Toshav, and Ger are different, and therefore uh, it shows that someone can become a uh, a native born or you know something like that so he's trying to uh he's trying to he's trying to argue conversion from the torah now the interesting thing is that in our in the comments on our facebook page joe uh someone named joe uh, wrote in and said can we can we fight against ger being translated as convert now my father's written on this extensively in the book fellow heirs uh the corpus of work there is exhaustive and so i pointed miguel to fellow heirs he said it was a cop-out and a non-answer <laughs> so uh go ahead t t tell uh, tell us what the difference would be between nohri toshav and gear well first of all um gear is a word that is found not only in hebrew but the the root the, the cognate is found in other uh ancient uh Semitic languages as well, and it simply means to travel. It means generally to travel outside of one's own country, and therefore to be in a position where one does not have the rights of uh, identity within a given people group. Uh, we might call it citizenship or or whatever. So, you know, for instance, if you're an American, uh, if you're a U.S. citizen and you travel to a foreign country. Uh, you may or may not have the privileges of the citizens in that country. And uh, so uh, the same thing occurred in the ancient Near East, okay? Uh, we know for certain that the, that the term ger in the Tanakh is used this way and is never, is, does not mean a convert. Um, in the same way that the rabbis uh, want to push everything back to ancient times in order to give credibility. For instance, I guess the best example would be that they say that the arguments between Hillel and Shammai were given to Moshe at Sinai. And, and, and even the rabbis that you talk to today, the, the Orthodox rabbis, you know, they'll candidly tell you, well, we know that didn't take place. But we, we talk of it in that way because we do believe that uh, the oral Torah continues to gain authority even as the words of Moses did. Okay, so the rabbis are also going to say that there were converts as opposed to non-converts who were part of ancient Israel. And in order to do that, they have to entirely uh, disregard all the, the, the linguistic as well as the lexical work that has been done on this root ger, or gara, to uh, a gur, to uh, sojourn, and so forth. Um, for instance, in, uh, uh, well, I don't know how long ago it was, but not long ago, they discovered, it was actually purchased, I think, in 1972 at Duke University, uh, and it's, if you want the technical things, it's Papyrus Duke, uh, inventory number 727. It is a papyrus scrap that was found in uh, Egypt, um, uh, probably in a burial uh, wrap, and um, it has been dated to the 3rd century BCE, okay? So 3rd century before uh, the turn of the era and the coming of our Messiah, Yeshua. So what is it? It's a little scrap, and it's, it's a note 
uh, it, it's an official note saying that they were having troubles in the fields uh, agriculturally because of some of the foreigners. It has nothing to do, this papyrus scrap has nothing to do with religion. It has nothing to do with uh, anything relating to Jewishness. Uh, it just simply uses the word pros, proslutos, which is the Greek word for, uh, translated uh, that translates gear uh, very often. Um, and uh, this is where we get our word proselyte from. Okay, So it's the Greek word in a papyrus from the 3rd century BCE, and it's simply talking about foreigners. It was the common word for a foreigner, someone who comes from a different country and resides in a, in a foreign country and therefore uh, is a worker or whatever and doesn't have the same uh, legal responsibilities. You know, finally, uh, uh, if you read the—I uh, know some people read the Stone Chumash, and it's amazing to see how they will, in the exact same verse, um, even—and if you look at the context— uh, for instance, Exodus 22:21. Now I know this is a list of commandments that are given uh, generally, uh, just general commandments compilation. So some might say, well, you don't really have context here, but it says, "You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him." Now that's the word ger, the gerlotone. Okay, so you shall not oppress a ger or uh, do him wrong, right? And what does it say? Ki gerim ha'item, because you, speaking to Israel, were gerim. You were ger in the land of of Egypt. But one more on that. Um, look at um, uh, another one. Would be uh, Leviticus twenty three twenty two. When you reap the harvest of your land, moreover, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor gather the gleaning of your harvest. You are to leave them for the needy and the alien. That's ger. Now, were, when, when, when Israel was in Egypt, were they proselytes? <laughs> no. It says, you shall not wrong a, a, a ger in your land, because you were gerim in in Egypt, and the last one I'll give you is, and this is uh, this is very clearly within the context of the laws given to the people of Israel. Speak. This is uh, Leviticus 23, 20, uh, 23 and following. Obviously, Leviticus twenty three is giving us the, the uh, lineup of the Moedim of the appointed times. Again. Adonai spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall have a rest, a reminder by blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. So this is Yom Teruah. Then I will—and, uh, uh, okay, so that that's where the whole thing begins. If you continue on in, in, and you go to chapter 25, he says, uh, uh, talking about the Shemitah and the, the Yovel year and so forth, he says— uh, he says, then I will also order my blessing for you in the sixth year that it will bring forth a crop for three years. When you are sowing the eighth year, you can still eat old things from the crop, eating the old until the ninth year when its crop comes in. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. For you, speaking to Israel, are but gerim and sojourners with me. He's not saying for you are but proselytes. He's saying you're you're, as it were, foreigners on my land. 
So the idea that uh, you know that there were conversions in the time of of the t- Torah, in the time of Moses and ancient Israel, is there's absolutely no evidence and all evidence against it. Even someone like um, uh, uh, um, Larry Schiffman, Lawrence Schiffman, in his book Who Was a Jew, comes to the conclusion that. Uh, and by the way, uh, Lawrence Schiffman is, uh, I think, a practicing Orthodox Jew. Um, he always wears a kippah at the SPL, at least. Um, so uh, here in his book, he comes to the conclusion that conversion, as it is known in the rabbinic literature, did not occur until the late Second Temple period, or at least within the Second Temple period. So he would say uh, 3rd century BCE and later. Okay, so then what, what do we do with uh, these other words, Nochri and uh, Toshav? Nochri is used of some of a foreigner who is uh, still marked by idolatry. You can almost find it everywhere that they're marked by idolatry because maybe they're no longer uh, doing that. We have Nochri used in Isaiah 50, uh, 56, 58. Uh, but um, he's he's known as having been an idolater, and that still kind of is attached to him or her. Um, and so, you know, in each case, you have to look at the these words within their context. Ger can mean somebody who is a, a foreigner who's just passing through Israel. For instance, you can sell you can sell treif, you can sell uh, the the, the uh, animal that's torn. You can sell that to. Uh, to the ger, it says. But this would be someone who's passing through. You have the toshav, ger toshav, which means a an, a foreigner who now resides within Israel. And this is where you, you know, if, I, I, I've said this uh, many times, if a ger in the Tanakh or in the Torah means a, uh, a proselyte, a convert, then a convert is to be treated as a native born and no longer called a convert. But so why does it say there shall be one law for the native-born and for the ger? If the ger is a convert, he's treated as a native-born. You should just say there's, you know, he's accepted as a trade, trade uh, as a native-born. Of course, that's rabbinic. That's later. And even then, in the rabbinic literature, if we're honest with ourselves and we read it, <laughs> most people who talk about the rabbinic literature, I don't think have read it. But if you read the rabbinic literature, you discover that there's plenty in the uh, in the rabbinic literature to indicate that even someone who becomes who is given the status, the the, the legal status of a Jew, is treated differently. For instance, the proselyte when the in the Shmoneus Rei is not allowed to say the God of our fathers. According to the rabbinic literature, the proselyte has to say the God of your fathers, and he can't. Uh, and the proselyte, the the convert, is not allowed to say who brought us into our land in the blessing. So, even even in the rabbinic literature, there continued to be a differentiation, uh, and the idea that you could gain status, uh, you could. No, okay, the final, the bottom line is this: God is concerned ultimately about bringing people from every nation into his covenant. All right? In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3 that this is the gospel. The gospel was preached to Abraham when it was said, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. God's purpose in giving the covenant to Abraham in the first place is not that there should be a separate people. His purpose is 
that there should be a people that he chooses who is, has a national identity and who has covenant uh, responsibilities to take this message to the nations. But the ultimate purpose is that all of the elect would come into this covenant. As covenant members, they would receive the benefits of the covenant, they would receive the blessings of the covenant, and they would hold the responsibilities of the covenant, and they would do so equally. Now, does this mean, am I saying, well, then there's no national, there's nothing related to the national uh, entity of Israel? Absolutely not. God has proven as, as he said time and again in, in, the, in the Tanakh, he said in Amos 3.2, you only have I chosen of all the nations of the earth. This reiterates uh, passages from Deuteronomy. So what is the purpose? The, God's purpose is to show that he will take a nation and he, and he will reveal himself through the prophets of that nation. He will bring his Messiah by and through that the, the lineage of that nation so that they would be a light to all of the other nations that ultimately God's people would be made up of people from every nation, from every kindred, from every tribe and every tongue. That's the purpose. The purpose is not to change status. The purpose is to become one of God's children and therefore a member of his covenant. All right, let's move on. Uh, I I think that that's exhaustive enough uh, in terms of, of gear. Uh, of course, I'm sure Miguel is going to uh, take umbrage with that, but that's fine. Okay, so JP writes in, he says, uh, In a recent conversation with a Baptist brother in Messiah, I was asked why I say yod heh vav instead of Jehovah. That the yod heh vav is actually Yiddish, and even the Karite <laughs> Jews agree that it was a J sound and not a Y sound. Any info or insight on this would be uh, Okay. <laughs> Excuse me, I, I don't. I, I'm, I'm just. I'm just chuckling because I know some good Baptist preachers who do very well with their Hebrew. Whoever this uh, Baptist preacher was doesn't apparently know that uh, Yod Hevave is simply how you spell the four letter or the tetragrammaton, the four letter name of God, which uh, uh, we don't know how to pronounce. And if anyone tells you they know how to pronounce it. They're trying to sell something. I know. I, I think what this person's saying, though, is that the, is that yeah. the is that the J sound was original and the Y sound isn't. So it should be J H uh, Y H instead of yo yeah Y H. Oh, uh, okay. Well, in the evolution of languages, J uh, had numbers of different sounds, and it coalesced with the letter I, as you probably know. Um, and it is true that in uh, Old Arabic, there is a J sound, a J, uh, and there still is in modern Arabic. Uh, there is in other, some some of the ancient uh, Semitic languages, uh, the linguists purport that there was a J sound. Okay. But uh, there was also clearly a Y sound, uh, and like our Y, um, in, for instance, at the beginning of the word yes, yeah and uh, followed by a vowel. So um, when someone says yod heh they're simply um, pronouncing the, the letters, the name of the letters, as we now have them. You know, if you were to say, well, uh, God's name in, in English is spelled G-O-D, well, that's not how it would have been said back in the Germanic times and so forth. So the way that we identify letters in the uh, in the alphabet is uh, is common convention, all right? So we're just spelling out yod heh vav heh when we do that and it's n- not uncommon amongst uh, particularly scholarly uh, 
uh, circles that when they're reading papers and so forth, say, for instance, at the SBL, in order not to offend anyone, uh, they they sometimes will, will say Yahweh. Uh, that's not uncommon, but it's becoming more familiar for them to spell it out. So that's what this gentleman's doing. There was the idea that there was a J sound early on in, in Hebrew, uh, if we go back to times of Ugaritic and so forth, and in the, um, the situations where we have multiple languages on a same shtila or something like that, like the Rosetta Stone, it gives us an opportunity to see, is there, is there a language that we know how it was pronounced? Uh, can we see how it was transliterated by another language, which we know is pronounced, which helps us give a feeling for how it might be? Frankly, we don't know. And uh, the whole Jehovah thing, or Yehovah, simply comes from a misrepresentation or misunderstanding of the way that the Masoretes put vowels upon the Tetragrammaton in order to uh, remind the reader to say Adonai rather than trying to pronounce yod vav And so as a result, um, uh, until this was understood, it, they, there were those who simply took the vowels that were added to yod vav and tried to pronounce it as though those were the original vowels. We know, of course, that they were not the original vowels, notwithstanding Nehemiah Gordon and others who say that the scribes in the Aleppo Codex made too many mistakes and forgot to change the vowels wrong. Uh, it's very, very consistent in the Aleppo Codex, as well as in the Aletogradensis Codex, that the vowels that are written there, which are later, Granted, the vowels are not written, you know, for instance, in Qumran scrolls. Uh, the vowels that were added by the Masoretes later um, clearly show that they intended the four-letter name of God, yod heh vav to be translated or to be read either as Adonai or in some instances as Elohim. Those were the vowels that were put. So Jehovah itself is a misnomer. It's the vowels of one word put on the consonants of another word. And so uh, everyone pretty much recognizes that. Now, whether it was J or Y, um, the evidence would indicate a, a Y or maybe even a, uh, a J kind of a, uh, but not a J uh, as far as we can tell. All right. The next question I got is probably my favorite. So everybody remembers, we talked about this a little bit on the show a couple of weeks ago when uh, James White uh, just absolutely annihilated the uh, Hebrew Israelite uh, that went on. And uh, the guy told Dr. White to pick up his Strong's Concordance. That was a mistake. Anyway, uh, James White, in his longer uh, debate with that gentleman the next, uh, I think it was the next day or uh, maybe the two days after that, uh, they actually did get into the Sabbath. Unfortunately, we, you know, speaking to James White, you had this uh, person who was horribly theologically off, uh, but did have one argument that I agreed with, which was that the Sabbath is still an act today. And uh, so Loretta asks this question, James White uses Revelation 110 to defend a Sunday Sabbath. Could the Lord's Day be just referencing John being transported to the day of the Lord? I'm not exactly sure what the end part of that means. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, the question still stands. James White, James White uses Revelation 110 to defend a Sunday Sabbath. What would your response be to that? Well, um, and obviously in the prophetic uh, literature of the Tanakh, you have uh, Yom Adonai, the day of the Lord. Um, and the day of the Lord in, in the prophetic uh, 
books is uh, regularly envisioned as the final day of judgment. The day of the Lord comes as a day of salvation for his people. It comes as a day of judgment and destruction for those who have uh, uh, rejected him and so forth and so on. Um, the, we know that very early on, in the after the destruction of the temple and the rise of uh, emerging Christianities, um, we know that there was this this enigma with the Shabbat. Uh, it had be it it was the typical uh, tradition not to fast on the Sabbath. Uh, we know that there is a tradition that the Pharisees fasted on the Mondays and Thursdays or Mondays and Wednesdays. And so in the Didache, which is usually dated to 100 of the Common Era, an early, some say Jewish Christian work, others say Christian work, uh, some say just Jewish work. Uh, it's definitely uh, um, Messiah uh, is there, Yeshua is there. So it, it definitely uh, are the followers of Yeshua. But in this early document, the Didache, um, they they use the word day of the Lord to mean Sunday or the first day of the week. And so uh, we know that there was a separation early on over this issue of the Sabbath. And uh, it, it began to mark the identity of the emerging Christian church. Can we find anywhere else in the scripture where day of the Lord clearly means the first day of the week? The answer is no. There's none. So if we take all of the times that we have day of the Lord or similar uh, phrases. Lord's day. Yeah, the Lord's day. The Lord's day, right. Uh, but there, the, the Lord's day is, uh, in the, okay, so that, that's a different term, actually. And, and that's and that's what we have in Revelation. Let, let's read right. this real quick. So right. I'll right. read uh, Revelation uh, 1, 9, and 10. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation in the kingdom and the and the patience endure the patient endurance that are in, that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying so right. that that's a 9 and 10 so he he specifically uses Lord's day right but that's the word kuriokos and uh it's only found one other time, if I remember correctly. Um, it's found in 1 Corinthians 11. Um, oh, uh, 11 somewhere. It's, it's okay. Let, here, I'll give you music. Let's look it up. No, 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 no. I have it here. Therefore, when you get when you meet together, it is not to eat the, the Lord's Supper. And so here you have not Lord's Day, but you have the Supper of the Lord. And it's the word, same word, kyriokos. Okay? So kyriokos does not mean... Uh, it does not relate specifically to a day. Kuriokos means belonging to the Lord. So, and, and it's from the word kurios, obviously, okay? So it means belonging to the Lord. So it, it, in, in Revelation 1.10, it says, I was in the Spirit on the day that belongs to the Lord. Now, what is the day that belongs to the Lord? Well, if you find, again, just in terms of, of Hebrew, if you find it in a construct state, which is the way the genitive would be used or the possessive, possessive would be uh, demonstrated, uh, it means a day that belongs to the Lord. The day of the Lord means a day that belongs to the Lord. In what way does it belong to him? It belongs to him in that he shows himself to be the sovereign judge and the sovereign savior. So, oh, no, wait, hang on. I want to make sure I understand. Are you, are you suggesting that the day of the Lord here in Revelation 1.10 are you saying that it is or is not Sunday? It is not Sunday. It's not a day of the week. It is the period of time in history 
when salvation history comes to its conclusion in terms of the the separating of those who are his from those who are not his and the judgment day okay, and what okay, follows. Okay, but, but I'm sorry, I, I used the wrong term. The Lord's day, what he uses in Revelation 1.10 is different than the day of the Lord, right? It is, but okay, it's so, but but it's the only uh, in terms of in terms of you mean the Greek. Yes, correct. So yeah, in Revelation right. one ten, are you suggesting that that is or is not Sunday? When he says, it, "I was in the spirit on the Lord's day," what does no. he mean by the Lord's day? I think it could be Sunday. I don't. I don't think it is, but it. Uh, no, I'm quite certain that it isn't because we have no other instance until later on in the in the uh, Christian literature where we have Lord's Day, this term kuriokes, kurioke hemera, or the day that belongs to the Lord. Um, that that we have no other instance until later on in in Christian uh, literature where that is specifically said to be the first day of the week. However, now. Let's let's compare the two times that this word kuriokos is used, uh, kuriakos, I guess I should say, um, which is used in the apostolic scriptures. What is the table of the Lord in 1 Corinthians 11? It's the altar. It's the altar in the temple. He says you cannot, you cannot uh, partake of the table of demons and the table of the Lord. What are the table of demons? The table of demons is sacrifices at the pagan temples. What is the table of the Lord? Go back to Ezekiel. Read it in Ezekiel. He uses the word table of the Lord to refer to the, the altar. Okay? So it means the altar upon which the Lord is uh, magnified, or the altar upon which the food of the Lord is placed. So the only other time we have it here is in Revelation 1.10. If it means the altar that belongs to the Lord, it means it's the day that belongs to the Lord. So the chat room chimes in and says, according to the Gospels, wouldn't the only possibility be the Shabbat? And then they quote, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath day. Okay, that's fine. But the, I think that it has more cogency to parallel it with the day of the Lord that we find uh, in, in, in the Tanakh. So if you look at Day of the Lord in the Tanakh, um, let me pull a couple of uh, things up here. Hang on just a sec. I got music for this. Okay. Okay, I have sufficiently found some. <laughs> okay, that uh, that's cute. Yeah, Caleb, I'm, I'm trying to incorporate the word "cute" into my vocabulary because so many people use it so many different ways. Okay, um, take for instance uh, Isaiah 13:9. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Now, in the in the Septuagint, it simply is a a, a regular hemera uh, kuriu. Okay. It, it, it's just a typical genitive, if you know anything about the, the Greek the languages, okay? And uh, uh, so, but what does it say? Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. Almost entirely throughout the, uh, through the uh, prophetic literature, the day of the Lord is a day when he comes and he fights for Israel, and he d uh, disperses or does away with her enemies. 
so wait, hang on just a sec. So you, we we have Curio Aniatas, which in uh, in uh, thirteen nine in Isaiah thirteen nine. So is this the now? This is the same word Curio. Cor- no, yeah, right? it's no, it's Hemera, which Hemera, which is the word for day, Hemeros. Yeah, and it's the word Curios, but it's in the genitive form. Yeah, yeah. The word Curiocos is a word that was made up apparently in the later. Well, it's only found in the apostolic scriptures, as far as I know. Um, it, it means belonging to the Lord, and it specifically means belonging to Yeshua. But isn't that what the genitive of the Greek means here in the Septuagint it, as well? Exactly. It is just a heightened way of saying it, and I think the reason that we find it in uh, twice in the apostolic scriptures, once by Paul and once by John, is there was this movement to say it, it's the day of the Lord, but it, it centers on Yeshua. And since Yeshua is regularly referred to in the Greek apostolic scriptures as kurios, okay, now it becomes the, the day that belongs to the Lord as represented in Yeshua. Because if he says, all judgment has been handed, put, given into my hand, Yeshua is the judge. So there's this movement from the day of the Lord of the of the Tanakh, which is a broader term, and it's centered now in the apostolic scriptures upon Yeshua, at least in these two times. That's somewhat speculative. But I think, bottom line, in Revelation 1.10, he's saying, take this whole apocalypse which I'm writing, which I've given, this whole vision. What is it? The whole vision is the culmination of the day of the Lord, the final time when those who are stand righteous in the sight of the Father through the work of Yeshua, are, are welcomed into their, their rest and into their eternity, and where those who have uh, rejected him will be judged eternally. Okay, so let's, let's play devil's advocate. For, well, actually, let's just explore this a little bit. Let's pretend for a few seconds that Revelation 1.10 is saying is, that the reference is to Sunday morning. Okay, let's say that, that uh, the Lord's Day here uh, is referencing Sunday morning. Do, do, would this, if we give that to James White, would this still imply that the Sabbath had been changed to Sunday? No. You know, and some would say, well, the day of the Lord is the day of his resurrection. Uh, uh, and so, well, uh, that's a whole other issue. But there's longstanding and old tradition that he resurrected on the first day of the week. Okay. Clearly, he shows himself alive on the first day of the week, and I think it's very possible that he did rise shortly after the Shabbat on the first day of the week. He could have risen just as Shabbat was ending. But would that but, make a change to, to a Sabbath Sunday, a no, Sunday Sabbath no, anyway? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. If you, if, you look in, uh, if you look in the Apostolic Scriptures for the first day of the week as a, a time of meeting, we find it, for instance, obviously in in uh in acts uh well it's presumed that it's in acts well no no uh, he's, he's specific they specifically say uh, they met on the first day of the week in yeah. uh, acts 27 right 20, acts verse 20, 20, 20, 20 verse 7 yeah on the first day of the week when we were gathered together break bread paul began te- uh, talking to them uh, uh, atten- uh, intending to leave the next day and he prolonged his message until midnight now uh, what does that opening verse tell us it tells us, how were they gathered to break bread? And as far as we can, all of the evidence tells us that there were plenty of Roman slaves, sometimes Gentile, sometimes Jewish, who were slaves, okay? 
but they were believers as well. According to Roman law, a slave was obligated to his master seven days a week, from sun up to sundown. What did they do then? They had their agape feast. Jude talks about this in the book of Jude. He talks about you have these hidden reefs amongst your agape feast. Now, what was the agape feast? What does agape mean? It means love. It's showing, it's showing the kind of love. And what did they do? They waited till after sunset when the Gentiles, who could not come because they were slaves and therefore had no freedom to leave during the daylight, after sunset they came and they gathered together and they celebrated uh, a, a feast of, uh, of camaraderieship, of companionship, and so forth and so on. Now, that's what we have going on here. Apparently, he says, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, they, they specifically gathered together to eat. I take that as the agape. Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until night. Why did he begin talking to them, well, at least according to the, the, the syntax of the Greek, he started talking to them? Uh, it, it was apparently common for when the Gentiles who were unable to meet during the Sabbath day came after sunset, that they would reiterate what they had talked about and what they had learned and what they had discussed during the, the Sabbath meetings, and they would eat together. And he prolonged his message until midnight. Okay, um, so I, I want to make I want to make sure uh, I want I just want to clarify what your your previous points of of Revelation one ten. What I hear you saying is is that Paul is or that uh, John rather I'm sorry John is using this uh, this term the Lord's Day synonymous with uh, the day of the Lord in the prophets, meaning the great and terrible day of the Lord. That is yeah. the end times or the day uh, the day that the Lord will come. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And I would suggest that the that the day of the Lord is not necessarily now I have to be careful here because I believe that the the six days of creation are twenty four hour days, okay? Because there was morning and evening. But there are times when day can be a, a a term which means a period of time. We know that. And so the day of the Lord encompasses that time when he brings his salvation story to its conclusion. It includes the judgment. It includes millennial reign. It includes uh, the, the, the raising of the dead, and so forth and so on. And so when, when John says, I was uh, in the Spirit on the day of the Lord, what he's doing is giving you the heading for his book. Everything that he's talking about now works up to and envisions this final consummation of redemption in Yeshua. And that's that's why he's saying it in the first chapter. Okay, why would so, he even tell us what day it was? So with that in mind, I got another question for you then. Oh, let, let, let one more thing. The, besides the Acts 20, verse 7, the only other time when people get together on the first day of the week in the apostolic scriptures is 1 Corinthians uh, uh, 16, 2. On the very first day of the week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. In other words, he's telling them, make a collection for those believers who are in Jerusalem and under duress because of the famine. So put, you know, put money away on the first day of the week. There's no indication anywhere in the apostolic scriptures that people regularly met on the first day of the week as for religious worship and time together, or that they set the first day of the week apart as a sacred day. It only happens later on. The earliest we find it is late first century. Okay, so uh, with, the, with the idea of John's revelation, this day of the, the Lord encompassing the rest of his book, 
Let's listen to uh, this from Greg Laurie, who's a pastor. Uh, and uh, this question basically goes to, are you pre- or post-trip rapture? But let's listen to what Greg Laurie has to say about it. Hey, everyone. Pastor Greg, answering your questions. Here's a good one from Garrett on Facebook. Will there be a pre-trip rapture or a post-trip rapture? Understand that when I do these things, I have 60 seconds, and it's almost over. These are not exhaustive answers. I'll give you my opinion. I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Why? Because the Bible says God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no instance in Scripture where God poured his judgment on his people when judgment was coming. He always delivered his people. Before the flood, Noah was taken up. Before Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, Lot and his family taken out. I believe we'll be in heaven before the tribulation begins. Now, your father was a pre-trib rapture. Uh, believer, yes, and and you and I believe your brother as well uh, have have moved away from a pre-trib rapture. Why? Well, um, with all due respect to the pastor that we listen to, um, it isn't always that he removes his people from the destruction; he preserves them through it. Look at Israel, Israel in in uh, Egypt. He didn't take Israel out of Egypt and then bring the ten plagues. He brought the ten plagues upon uh, the whole land, but he preserved Israel. He kept them from the destruction of it because they were in the land of Goshen, and uh, he didn't uh, allow the, the plagues to uh, ravish that part of, the, of Egypt. The same thing is true. He used Noah, but I'm, I'm afraid that's not quite a good analogy because Peter uses uh, Noah uh, uh, to, say, to talk about the fact that he was preserved through the flood, not out of the flood. He, was, he, he wasn't lifted up into heaven, then God put the flood on the earth, and then he was taken back and put down on the earth. No, he was preserved by way of the ark, and of course Peter uses that as the analogy for being in the Messiah. So uh, wh why, <laughs> well, that okay, do I only have 60 seconds like no, the past? No, no, you got as much time <laughs> as you want. All right, it, it, you know, in... Um, in Matthew uh, 24, which I think would be a, a you know a significant uh, text, um, he he talks about coming again. How many times does Yeshua come um, to the earth? He came once in his incarnation. What does Hebrews 9:28 say? He says, "So Messiah also." having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation, without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Okay, wait a minute. If you're a pre-trib rapture person, he comes before the tribulation, then he comes after the tribulation. So he doesn't come two times, he comes three times. Now, the way the dispensationalists get around that is they say, well, the first time he, he doesn't... Uh, he doesn't touch the earth. We meet him in the air. Then he takes the church up to heaven, and all of the believers of the church age reside in heaven. Then he comes back, and his feet stand on the Mount of Olives, and so forth and so on. That's the way they get. That's the way they get around it. You know. In fact, <laughs> if you don't mind me saying so, dispensationalism began as a concerted effort, and I think a proper concerted effort to find the relationship between what the dispensationalists or the to-be-dispensationalists would say is the church and Israel. In other words, 
Well, let me read you a couple of quotes from some of the early founders of dispensationalism. And I recognize we have now what's called progressive dispensationalism. Uh, some of the professors from Dallas Theological Seminary and others have worked on this and presented uh, their their idea of kind of a more modern uh, expression of dispensationalism, which they think fits better with the overall scope of Scripture. But I'm going back to standard dispensationalism, and the, there, are, there are, according to Ryrie in his book uh, Dispensationalism Today, there are three pillars upon which dispensationalism rests, and the first one is keeping Israel and the Church distinct. So you have Schofield. Are you familiar with that name? The, his uh, Bible. He, has, he had also a correspondence course. In that course, I read, uh, I quote, he says, Comparing then what is said in Scripture concerning Israel and the Church, we find that in origin, calling, promise, worship, principles of conduct, and future destiny, all is contrast. And let me read you one more without boring you. This is from uh, Lewis Berry Schaefer in his book, Dispensationalism. Uh, and I quote, the dispensationalist believes that throughout the ages, God is pursuing two distinct purposes, one related to the earth with earthly people and earthly objectives involved, while the other is related to heaven with heavenly people and heavenly objectives involved. I could go on and on with quotes. But the point simply is this. If you take the view that the church is absolutely distinct the ecclesia that Yeshua promised to build, as he said in Matthew 16, if that is entirely distinct from Israel, then you have to come up with a system of interpretation that allows that distinction to be maintained throughout the scriptures. Dispensationalism tried to do that. How did they do it? They said basically, and I'm not, again, going to get too involved here, but there are seven time periods, which is what the word dispensationalist or dispensation means. There are seven time periods, and in each one of these time periods in Earth's history, God requires different things of his people in each time period. This is how the dispensationalism could get away from saying that the law maintains. The law was good for the dispensation of law, but according to the dispensationalists, now since the coming of Christ, they would say, we're in the dispensation of grace. And the dispensation of grace involves the dispensation of the church. Once the church is taken out of the world at the rapture, pre-tribulational, then uh, God will start up his time again with Israel. And so, really, it comes back to ecclesiology. It comes back to our understanding of, uh, of God's people. It seems to me, in brief, Paul says and makes it clear in Romans 9, 10, 11, that there is one people one shepherd, one people, and one flock, and one tree, and everyone that is grafted in or remains into that tree is his people. That's it. There's one people, not two. And so uh, when Yeshua comes, returns, he comes to bring about the conclusion of, uh, of, his, of, of redemption. And so some would say, well, then, Tim, does that mean that his bride is going to go through... Uh, uh, tribulation. And the dispensationalists would say, God would never allow the church for which Yeshua shed his blood to go through tribulation. Wait a minute. He certainly allowed Israel to go through tribulation. He certainly allowed the believers within Israel. Look at Daniel and his companions. They were exiled to Babylon. 
they were put into dire straits, so forth and so on. I mean, how about being thrown into a lion den? Lion's den. Do you think that would be tribulation? So the idea what about that Joseph, would, Joseph, or Joseph, yeah, precisely. So the idea, the idea that his people would never go through tribulation. And let me say one more thing on that note. It tends to come from a an American uh, affluent society perspective. All the time that the dispensationalists have been saying God would never allow his bride to go through uh, tribulation, there have been believers in Africa, there have been believers in other countries who have died for their faith in the most hideous ways. You know, there were pastors that have been buried up to their, uh, just their head out of the ground, uh, honey poured all over their head, and then allowed for the animals and the, and so forth to to put them to death. I mean, for these people to say, well, God would never allow uh, his bride, his believing uh, church to go through tribulation is is just, uh, it's out of, uh, it, it, I don't even know how to say it. I feel badly for those who might even hear such a thing. The fact of the matter is, we can rely upon this, that if God brings us through tribulation, he will give us the grace and the strength to persevere. So that even as Paul said, that he whether he lived or whether he died, he wanted to do it for the glory of God. Okay, we have a follow-up question to Revelation 1.10. When John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, what does in the Spirit mean? Does it mean that John was transported into the future to the Lord's day? Well, you simply have the, the typical uh, preposition N in the dative, which can mean a lot of things. It can mean, I was in the Lord's day by means of the Spirit. It can be a dative of means. Um, it, it can simply mean that the Spirit came upon me and gave me this vision, which I think is the most likely. And I, whether he was brought into the future, uh, as it were, by way of vision, uh, I, I don't know. But he was, he was shown these things so that he could write them down, and, and that was done through the power of the Ruach. So uh, that's what it means. He, he's not He's not dreaming these things up himself. The reason he starts Revelation 1, 10 that way is because he's saying this is a vision, just like the um, prophets of old would be given a vision or would be, as it were, overcome by a vision, uh, which is the word Navi. The, you know, the Navi in Hebrew means a, a prophet, but it also has its root in to boil, to, to be agitated. And so... Um, you know, he's saying, the Spirit came upon me. I was in the Spirit, and he showed me this vision, and here he's writing it down. It just means that it's the power of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit that gave him this revelation. Okay, let's move on. I got a couple more here, and we're uh, we're getting close. Okay, so... Um, I recently was told that the Bible tells us not to go into debt for any reason. Could you expound on the biblical guidance for debt? Thanks. Well, you have to define debt. For instance, uh, I guess one could say that, uh, for instance, my wife and I bought our house back in 1986, and we're still buying it. <laughs> um, we took out a mortgage. Uh, we didn't have uh, the money. Most people do not have uh, uh, money to buy a house, and uh, at least in our economy. And so uh, the question is, did I go into debt? And the answer to that is no. And I did the calculations. I did it by way of uh, 
uh, the realtor that was helping us and so forth and so on. Now, you don't know because you don't know what values are going to do in the future. But generally speaking, property values uh, go down, then they come back up. My point is simply this. The equity that you have in your house, if it's greater than the debt that you owe, you're not in debt. You have equity in the house, which means you could sell it, uh, presumably today, for more than what you owe, and maybe even come out with a little extra. So uh, it would be like to borrow uh, $5 in order to buy an antique that is worth $30 and will continue to be worth that uh, as long as you take care of it. So you, you exchange one for the other, you end up with more. So the, the going into debt... In, particularly in the scriptures, had to do with going into debt without any foreseeable way of repaying that debt. Now, some would say anytime you go into debt, that's possible because as the scriptures teach, we don't know what tomorrow brings. We could be uh, disabled or we could lose our job or the economy could fall, so forth and so on, granted. Um, but uh, throughout uh, even ancient history, there was the need to uh, give pledges in order to gain one's ability to have seed, to plant, to uh, have animals, to breed, and so forth and so on. So I think the, the wisdom is don't go into debt unless it is uh, extremely necessary. And if at all possible, when you go into debt, try to go, try to have value in the thing that you're going to debt for um, in, in a way that would uh, give you the opportunity to get out of debt. I think wisdom does tell us that when we go into debt, we are the slaves of those that we owe. And there's a certain reality in that. Okay, So the better you can do without being in any debt, uh, the, the best. But are you sinning if you take out a mortgage to buy a house? I don't think so. I don't think that's what Yeshua had in mind and what his words mean. In his day, if you went into debt and could not repay, you became a literal slave. You sold yourself into slavery in order to maintain uh, w without being put into prison, uh, debtor's prison. And so he's saying, but it's interesting, isn't it? He says, don't be in debt to anyone except to love him. So we're indebted to love one another. Yes. And what does that mean? We're indebted to love each other, even if we don't get anything back. And so there's a sense in which uh, he's making a... Uh, 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 I won't say a play on words, but he's emphasizing the idea that there is a time to give away of yourself and maybe never give it, get it back. Now, still, monetarily, we have to be very careful. Wisdom tells us that we should do our level best not to be in debt in a way that we could not pay it back. And that's, I think, the bottom line. Uh, if we can live debt-free, by all means do that. But I would just say one more thing about that. Don't give up everything to live debt-free. Okay? I've known some people that said we're going to live debt-free, and we didn't see them again ever attend uh, our gatherings together. Uh, they weren't going anywhere else because they didn't want to spend money on gas. They didn't want to buy a car, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, make wise choices and do your best to, if it's required to go into debt, and sometimes uh, I know this has happened in our family. We've had to go into debt because we did not have sufficient medical insurance and we had to pay uh, hospital and so forth. But fortunately, we, we were able to do that over time. And so there are some exigencies that we can't always count on. If we can make the decision, it's best not to go into debt unless doing so gives us equity that we could immediately turn, at least foreseeably, we could turn back and pay the debt. 
Okay, I got uh, two more, maybe one more. We'll see. There's a lot of mythology about the 10 lost tribes of Israel, Judah and Benjamin in the south and the rest in the north. My question is, was Simeon ever considered to be part of the northern kingdom? Joshua 19.1 through 9 states that their inheritance is within Judah. Well, uh, it's it's pretty well known that uh, there were two tribes in the south, uh, Benjamin and Judah, as you mentioned. That leaves 12 in the north. Ten, and, in the, ten in the north. I mean, 10 in the north. That, and, and, of course, Levi was never counted as one of the tribes per se because they didn't inherit the land. And land, and the land is, is what ties a tribal identity, as we know. Uh, when they came into the land, there were a portion to each of the tribes. And, of course, Simeon did not get um, uh, land inside of Judah. Um, so it... it I, I think the obvious answer is yes. We may now. What does it mean that their inheritance is in Judah? Well, their inheritance is in Judah in the sense that the uh, that the Messiah is coming from Judah, and in in that sense, the uh, uh, inheritance of all the tribes is in Judah. In Judah. So, okay. Last question that we got: What did "poor in spirit" mean in its first century context? All right, that's in uh, Matthew 5, I think, at the beginning of the chapter. Um, yeah, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And uh, the word uh, pnochas, pnochas um, can mean poor economically. It can also... Uh, it can it can also mean uh, disadvantaged uh, in in other ways, and there, there's a sense in which, at least in some of the uh, literature, uh, both biblical and non-biblical, we have a sense that it can mean uh, being providentially put into a situation where you have no other option but to rely entirely upon upon God. Now, some would say, okay, we we rely entirely upon God all the time. Granted. Okay, but those that are most uh, economically disadvantaged will find themselves crying out to God in uh, in ways uh, that you wouldn't if you were more affluent. Uh, I, I know that's unfortunate, but that's the reality of things. And so, um, I I take this to mean uh, blessed are those who are of such a uh, in such a situation in their lives that they have no other recourse than simply to say, Lord, I have no one to turn to but you. Now, should we seek that? Of course, this is what the Roman Catholic Church did in its uh, uh, some of its uh, ways, uh, you know, the monastic uh, orders and so forth, where they put themselves into poverty in order to find themselves in this position. That's not what Yeshua is teaching. What he's teaching is that if you are in that situation, if for whatever reasons you come into being uh, economically disadvantaged to the point where you have very, very little, and you have nothing left but to just rely upon on God for, for his grace and his mercy, you still are blessed. Because to rely upon him in that way draws you close to him, maybe in a way that you hadn't before. And it might be, we couldn't speculate this, but it could be that he brought you into that situation for that very reason. Sometimes he has to take away the things which we depend upon in order so that we might depend upon him. And I, and I take it that way. And I think if you read in the, my Matthew commentary, that's that was my final conclusion. All right. That's the questions we got. A big thank you to my father. 
for well, thank the, you for letting me uh, talk on. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, I'm sure that we'll have my dad on another time sometime uh, in the near future. And we hope that uh, Rob had a restful day reading his Jeremiah uh, in Hebrew on the dock in Coeur d'Alene. Uh, if you have more questions for my father, feel free to send them to me. I will uh, catalog them and we will uh, ask them next time. You can either put them on our Facebook page or you can write them to chag at torresource.com. That's chag at torresource.com. And of course, our Facebook page is facebook.com backslash The Robin Caleb Show. I believe that's it. It might just be Robin Caleb Show. I suppose I should know my own URL. Anyway. Pardon me. Until next week, we hope that you have a wonderful week. We hope that our conversation here has glorified our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah.